You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. Today we're going to finish our series on purpose. On purpose. We've been looking at, uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 4, but we've been looking at the story of Jesus being tested and tempted in the wilderness. And uh, I promised you last week that we were getting out of the wilderness, and we are. We're out of the wilderness, but that doesn't mean the tests are over. That doesn't mean that uh, the battle's uh, not continuing and the enemy's not trying to bring about uh, his test, which undermines. So the devil always tests to undermine, deceive, destroy, and today we're going to look at what he does to discourage. Uh, but God has a purpose in tests, and that's to qualify, prepare, promote, prepare us for what he wants to bring us into. In Luke chapter 4, just after the final temptation of, of, the serp, of Satan tempting Jesus, we see Jesus overcoming them all as he does. And in verse 13, it says, when the devil ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Today, the message title, if you're taking notes, is When Life Throws Hands. And we've been going through the, a series of tests. The first one is the appetite test. And we looked at how Jesus was tempted by the devil. After 40 days of fasting, Jesus was hungry. And the enemy came along and said, see these stones? You can command these. If you are really the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And the first test of our purpose in God and our calling and really just moving forward in what God has for all of us is the test of the appetite test. It's can we have self-control to say no to feeding a legitimate need from an illegitimate source? That's the first test, the appetite test. We too was the insecurity test. We have the podcast for all of these. But the insecurity test deals with the next temptation where, where Satan took Jesus uh, to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, if you're really the son of God, jump off this building, throw yourself from this building and, and God will give his angels charge concerning you as the scripture says and the devil quotes the Bible to misuse the Bible. He quotes the scripture to misuse the scripture to bring about something that's not the will of God and Jesus, uh, the, here's the test, prove it. Prove you are who you say you are. And, and insecurity always demands we prove something to people's opinions and even maybe to our own opinion. The third test was last week where we dealt with the ambition test and, and that one was uh, probably really the, the most challenging of all because it's when we deal with the real heart issues, the dreams of our soul, the heartbeat of what we've been after in life, when are we willing to give those to God? The third temptation is when Jesus is taken up to a high mountain and, the, and Satan says this, he says, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. He shows him one kingdom after another. He says, I'll give you all that. All you have to do is just bow your knee. Just bow your knee. No one else will know. <laughs> just bow your knee and I'll give you all of that. What was he offering him? A crown without a cross. And we looked at the ambition test deals with, can you give your dreams to God? What's the issue? The issue is worship. Do we pursue even a dream from God more than we pursue a relationship with God? I gave you definitions of several definitions of what idols are. Idols can be anything we put in the place of God in our life, but idols can also be what we go around God to go after. 
Well, we sidestep our relationship with God because we want it so bad, we're willing to pursue it and maybe even compromise who we are to get there. The last test is what we're going to finish the series with today. It's the discouragement test. After those three temptations were ended, it says that, that Satan departed from Jesus until what? An opportune time. This word time here in the Greek is the word kairos. And in the Greek language, there's a couple words for time. One is chrono, defines chronological time. So on your watch or on your phone right now, you can tell what time it is here in Mason City. And you know what time. Some of you may be checking your watch in a few moments because you're wondering when it's time to eat. And, uh, and I, know, I know, I get it. But, but here's, here's what, that's chronological time. It's a specific time uh, and a specific date or moment on the calendar. But here's, kairos means this. It's an opportunity as if a door's been open, a window's been open, and there's an opportunity to step through. And what does this mean for, for the enemy? It says that he waited until an opportunity to try to come back and bring temptation. In other words, the test wasn't over yet. Just because Jesus came out of the wilderness doesn't mean the enemy was done trying to undermine, trying to subvert, trying to destroy the purpose of God in and through Jesus. And so he's going to come back at an opportune time. Verse 14 says that Jesus, as he comes out of the wilderness, returns in the power of the Spirit. If you remember the last few weeks, we looked at how Jesus was led by the Spirit. God led him into the wilderness. It's not by accident. He was there on purpose. But Jesus was there with potential and the presence of the Holy Spirit upon him, it says, as the Son of Man. So he, Jesus is fully God. He's also fully man. And at his baptism in the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like the dove. Then he's led by the Spirit into the desert, into the wilderness. But he comes out with power. The, the, the space between potential, promise, and power is the test. That's the space. That's where the greatest temptation is. That's where the greatest struggle is. That's where the greatest fight is. And, and it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. What, the, what, what that tells me for us is that when we are coming out of a season of testing, we're not coming out the same way we went in. You may have gone into a battle, into a storm, into a challenge, into, a, into an assignment from hell to try to steal your identity, your purpose, your calling, to try to undermine your marriage, to try to take out your kids. Whatever it was that the enemy tried to do to stop you, just know that the more he fights you, the more he's prophesying your purpose. And you're coming out in power. You're coming out with the testimony of the faithfulness of God. You're coming out with a new anointing. You're coming out with a new, a, new, a, a new strength and confidence, not in yourself, but in God himself. A new confidence and faith in who God is and that the God who led you in will bring you out and he will bring you out in victory. He will not bring you out empty-handed. That's the good news when it comes to these seasons of testing. In verse 16, it says that this, that Jesus came to the very first place he would go in publicly declaring his ministry as the Messiah to the nation of Israel, he comes to Nazareth. And Nazareth may not mean much to you, but it's the hometown of Jesus. While he was born in Bethlehem, as we'll see for the Christmas story, Jesus would spend a couple years after Bethlehem in Egypt, and then he would return back when it was safe to do so with his family, and he would spend his adolescence all the way into his adulthood in the town of Nazareth. In other words, Nazareth is the place he was brought up, as it says here in verse 16. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he opened the book, he found the place where it was written. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 
because he has anointed me to preach the gospel or good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant who sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And here's something that's about to blow all their minds. He just read Isaiah 61, and if you don't know the reason he's reading this, this first, uh, this first public appearance in the ministry of Jesus, here's what he says. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's announcing the mission statement of the Messiah. If you want to know what Jesus is doing, what he came to do and what he still does, is that he still preaches the good news to the brokenhearted and the poor. He still heals. He still opens blind eyes. He still rescues and restores. What does he say? He preaches liberty to those who are captive. There's freedom from sin. There's freedom from bondage. There's freedom from shame. There's freedom from fear. Jesus says today, all of that that was promised is about me. And you think at this moment that revival is about to break out in Nazareth. It says they marveled. And they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? In other words, they misunderstand and they don't know he's the son of God. They're so familiar with Jesus. They're so used to Jesus. Can I tell you one of the greatest dangers of the Christian is to become a professional Christian, a casual Christian, a person who's so used to God that we're immune to God? We're so familiar with church, we can sing the songs without even breaking a sweat. And we're so used to the motions and the routines and all the activity of church, but we have settled into this thing where we begin to recognize that God did something back then, and maybe God will do something in the future. But we have a hard time with today. What does Jesus say? Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Religion is an expert in what once was. But Jesus comes and does something today. He says today. In fact, tell your neighbor, today. Tell your second choice. I just got somebody in trouble. Okay. Today. He says today. This is the moment. This is the moment. And everybody marvels at what he says. They say, isn't this the, the, the carpenter's son? And then Jesus begins to go through. We won't go through all of it in time. But he says, you will begin to say to me, physician, heal yourself. What we hear you doing in the big cities in Capernaum, do here too. And they don't realize that Jesus is more than willing and able to do everything. He does there, he can do here. But they're not saying that in faith, they're saying that with skepticism. Who do you think you are? What should be a revival in his hometown becomes the first rejection. And the reason I'm pointing this out is because the devil doesn't fight fair. And the discouragement test is often at the point where we expect things to work. We expect things to be successful. We expect the promise to be fulfilled. The enemy comes in unexpectedly. It gives us a setback. Do you know it would later say in Mark's gospel that Jesus could do no mighty works in Nazareth except he healed a few sick people? Like some, man, some places that'd be a revival if anybody got healed. But that was a limitation. That was, the bar was low. 
In other words, there was more that Jesus could have done or wanted to do, but Nazareth didn't make room. In fact, watch what happens when, when he t- begins to speak to them. <laughs> Verse 28 So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they thrust Jesus out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And passing through the midst of them, he went his way. You know why? Because his time hadn't come yet. In fact, people would find out later, the Pharisees thought they could kill him but they couldn't. The Roman soldiers, in fact, didn't kill him. Jesus laid down his life. No one, he said, takes my life from me. It wasn't time yet. But here's what's interesting. The first town, Nazareth, his hometown, the place where he should have had the most encouragement, the people most familiar with Jesus who've seen his sinlessness and his perfect uh, life and his total surrender and a, a submission to the Father who've witnessed all of that are still the ones that reject him. The first test out of the wilderness was the test of discouragement. Would that be the end of the story? Well, I'm glad it wasn't because Jesus had many more places to go. And we'll see what he says later about his assignment and and what it looks like to walk in purpose. But I want to highlight something here because maybe you have a Nazareth. Maybe you have a people around you. Maybe you have an environment or you've had the words of somebody that discourage your heart so much. Maybe your circumstances ended in failure and you tried to take a step forward. You tried to get free but you fell back into addiction. You tried to, 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 to grow in your faith, but you seemed to take 10 steps backwards. And, and the enemy's come along and he's pounded you with discouragement to say things will never change. When I was in middle school, I, uh, I loved basketball. In fact, I loved basketball so much, I was convinced I was gonna be an NBA player. Problem, I was about a foot and a half too short. <laughs> well, at middle school, I was a lot shorter than that, but... Uh, and, and I, I couldn't shoot as well as I thought I could shoot. But, but I remember one day I'm playing with my neighbors. We, we played basketball just about every day and played with my neighbors at this kid's house down the street. And I thought I was playing with my friends, but I found out one of them wasn't really my friend. And here's how I found out. I'm, I'm getting ready to pass the ball. I got it over my head. I've got my arms extended. I'm, I'm ready to pass as I'm looking around. And this kid comes up and sucker punches me as hard as he can in my stomach. And being a, I think I was maybe 12, being a 12-year-old boy, I'm like trying to stand back up and retaliate. But it's taken, it's knocked all the wind out of me. And I drop to the ground. And I'm just trying, oh, I can't breathe. You know, I'm doing this. And of course, later I was thinking through all the things that I would have done. <laughs> and I should have said. And, and it, it, but I couldn't at the moment because that sucker punch about knocked me out. That's what discouragement does. Discouragement comes where you least expect it at the opportune time that the enemy's already recognized. If I just hit you with this failure, you'll give up. If I just tell you this lie, you'll quit. Things are moving forward in your marriage and then the enemy comes along with discouragement to derail your relationship. Your kids seem far from God and the enemy comes along and says things will never change. They'll always be far from God. And there's always that whisper of discouragement. And I think one of the greatest tools in the arsenal of the enemy is discouragement. The first town that Jesus would preach to would be the hometown that he grew up in and it was the town that rejected him. What's your Nazareth? What's the place of discouragement in your life? 
What's the sucker punch that he's used to try to knock the wind out of your faith? The dictionary definition of discouragement is to deprive of confidence or courage. To dissuade, and here's what the strategy of the enemy is, to, to dissuade or attempt to dissuade you from doing something. To keep you from doing what you should do or are called to do. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul said it this way. He said, you know, I, I, I had, Paul, actually the apostle, had several visions of heaven, dramatic encounters with God. And he says, because of, so that I, I, I'm not lifted up beyond measure, like I don't become pride-filled. And we know the end of every bit of pride is a fall. He says, a thorn in my flesh was given to me. And here's what he says it is. Here's how he defines it. A messenger of Satan was sent to buffet me. And maybe you read that and you read buffet. <laughs> Sounds good. Give me the buffet. But this word buffet, while we don't use it very often in our language for this term, so a couple weeks ago, um, Jason and I were having a conversation with, with Jacob and uh, Pastor Jacob, our student pastor, and, and uh, we learned from him how to speak Gen Z. And he learns from, uh, from us how to speak English. So, so Jason was talking about, some, he, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but he said something about fisticuffs. <laughs> I know, exactly. So he said fisticuffs. It was not the, the end result of a staff meeting, I promise. It, it was not coming to fisticuffs. But, but he said fisticuffs, and we explained what fisticuffs was, and it's not a term used very often, just like Buffett. And that's where I got throwing hands from. He explained that to me. So, so okay. But, but here's, here's what Buffett means. He says, there's a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. What does it mean to buffet? It means to repeatedly strike an opponent. To strike with the fish, literally your knuckles, to hit hard and to make a blow that stings and crushes. One scholar defined it this way. The idea of buffeting is to strike with something sharp and painful so that it sticks deeply in the flesh and remains there. Do you know what discouragement's like? It's like the bite of a serpent that injects the poison of despair later. We think the issue was what just happened, the setback, the failure, what people said, what we did, and, and it's the bite. That's the initial impact, but the poison of it is what happens long-term through discouragement. There's people right now that are not walking in their God-given purpose because they're still carrying the poison of discouragement. They've allowed their faith to be diminished and no longer believe God's promise concerning their future and what God wants to do. And maybe even just that God answers prayer altogether because they've said discouragement define how they view God, the poison of discouragement. And, and, and the picture is here that it's not just one hit, it's a continuous, repeated blow. That's what discouragement is meant to do. It's designed to knock us down and leave a mark, leave a sting, so that we won't get back up, so that we won't move forward, so that we won't believe God's promise. Discouragement comes to take us out. Sometimes the enemy uses others as his mouthpiece of discouragement. Deuteronomy 1.28, the Israelites, when they were going into their promised land, that God said, it's yours. It, it, it's your inheritance. It belongs to you. They get to the promised land and you know the story. Some of the spies go check it out, and the majority of the party of spies checking out the promised land come back with a discouraging report. And here's what Deuteronomy says of that moment. Our brethren have discouraged 
our hearts. They said, the people are greater, taller than we. The cities are great, fortified up to heaven. In other words, we can't do it. I know what God promised, but we can't do it. I don't know why it is that some people feel like it's their calling in life to be a discourager. <laughs> like if people are on fire, they're going to put it out. People are excited, they're going to diminish it. If, if somebody's dreaming, like we talked about last week, saying there's more for my life, God has more, it's the person that comes along and says, who do you think you are? And just like Nazareth, maybe the people closest to you have been the mouthpiece. God actually designs family and community to be what encourages and builds up, not tear down. He also designed the church to be a family. And sadly, many times in church, rather than be encouraged and grow in our purpose, we've been discouraged. The church should be the most life-giving place on planet Earth. Well, I just feel like it's my job to make sure everybody stays out of pride. No, it's not. <laughs> Do you know the Bible says, humble yourself, don't humble others? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. God humbles us, we humble ourselves. I'd rather humble myself than have to be humbled. It's a lot better, speaking from experience. But, but I'll, I'll tell you, it's not our job to try to keep others from pride. We should be the ones building them up, encouraging them, pointing them to Jesus, coming alongside and saying, you can do this because God's your answer. God's your strength. God's your hope. God's not done with you. I know you failed, but here's forgiveness in Jesus. I know you messed up. I know they deserted you, but God didn't desert you. When they walked out, God walked in. When they cursed you, God blessed you. You know what? Let's make it personal. <laughs> I don't want my words to ever be in the arsenal of the accuser. Like if he's got a Batman tool belt right now, like the devil's got a Batman tool belt. He's got his battering, he's got all this stuff. Like I don't want within that tool belt to be my words. My accusations, my gossip, my slander, my talking about them. Do you know your words can be at the disposal of the Holy Spirit or the enemy? You choose. Our brethren have discouraged our hearts. What if they came back and said, you know what? It looks tough. It looks difficult. But God promised us and God's going to make it happen. All right. First Kings 19. See the story of Elijah. Elijah is, man, Elijah is like, one of the high watermarks of the Old Testament prophets. Elijah, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings, sees a major confrontation. It's like a Wild West showdown. It's him versus 850 false prophets. And they have this showdown where he says, we're gonna pray, we're gonna have a sacrifice, we're gonna build this altar, and, and you do the same, and I'm gonna pray for God to answer by fire, and you talk to your God, Baal, and you see if he'll answer by fire, and whoever answers by fire, that's God. And so the whole nation gathers, they're witnessing this. It's like the Super Bowl. They're watching this major showdown, and here's what Elijah does. He prays a very simple prayer as all their religious activity, the prophets of Baal, 850. Can I just tell you, a majority doesn't mean it's right. Just because an opinion is repeated doesn't mean it's right. Just because most people believe that opinion doesn't mean it's right. 
And Elijah has an unpopular opinion, but here's what he does. He prays heaven down and God answers by fire and the whole nation sees, man, the God of the Bible, Jehovah, he is God. The whole nation, and they put to death the 850 false prophets. They were on the wrong team. Here's what I want you to catch. Elijah has like, if you're a prophet in Israel, like man, it is a good day. I would call that a successful day. You just called the nation back to repentance. They just saw a bona fide miracle, undeniable God. Chapter 19, watch what happens. Ahab, who's the king, told Jezebel's wife, the queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with a sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah Here's what she says, so let the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life like one of them by tomorrow at this time. So I'm gonna kill you, Elijah. And when he saw that, it's weird how you can hear a message, but you see it because it plays on the screen of your mind. You're staying up at night thinking about it, all the ways it can go wrong, all the reasons things will never change. Elijah, here's that threat. He just confronted 850 demonized prophets and yet the threat of one person. Here's what happens. When he saw that, he arose, and he ran for his life. Do you know what discouragement does? It always tries to displace you from the purpose of God. He arose and ran for his life. One day having great success, the very next day, the greatest test. Do you know, it's, it's often at the point of transitions in our life where we face the greatest temptation for discouragement. Jesus coming out of the desert into Nazareth, test. Elijah, mountaintop, successful, next day, test. Sometimes the test of discouragement is coming out of something. Sometimes it's what we're entering into. Either way, the test is the same. The temptation is always to displace us, either keep us from entering something God wants to do, or to crush us just on the heels of a miracle we saw God do. It's amazing to me, human human. Uh, nature, that we can see a bona fide miracle, a God thing in our life, and the very next day be as discouraged as can be. Happens all the time. He himself, verse four, went a a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat under a broom tree, and here's the great Elijah, the prophet of Israel, the one who prayed fire down from heaven. It says, he prayed that he might die. It's enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I am no better than my father's. He sounds discouraged, if you ask me. Things don't change. Man, I just saw a revival one day, but it was pointless. I'm no better than my forefathers. And he's ready to throw in the towel. He's ready to quit. Now, God's not done with Elijah, and that's the good news. But I want you to recognize failure, because he probably would have defined this as a failure. But even if you've had a real, genuine failure, I'm just going to tell you, failure isn't final when God's involved. Failure doesn't have to be the end. It doesn't have to define your future. Even if you stepped out and tried to do something that you felt was God and you, man, you fell flat on your face. And you thought, I'm never gonna do that again. I'm never gonna believe like that again. I'm never gonna pray like that again. Can I just encourage you that the enemy is using discouragement to keep you from stepping up again into your assignment? You know what you're created for. You're raising your kids and it seems like all hell is breaking loose. It's discouragement. See enemy coming along and accusing you, saying you're a horrible parent. You can't do this. You won't make it. And it's that discouragement that will keep you from moving forward in God. But I want to remind you today that you don't have to listen to every lie and every opinion. In fact, let's look at one more story before we, I give you the final two points. Oh, my only two points. 
I didn't forget them today, I promise. Nehemiah 2, I want you to see the story. Nehemiah is a great, great book. Nehemiah is sent by the king of Persia, and he's sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Their city walls are broken down for generations, and because of that, the city is under siege perpetually, not by armies, but by just continual danger, by neighboring communities and, and by just hazards and animals coming in and out, and it just the city is in disrepair. Here's the problem. It's hard for them to build when they're not secure. So many people have a hard time seeing their purpose because they're just trying to make groceries. <laughs> they're just trying to survive another day. They're just trying to hold that relationship together. They're just trying to keep their sanity raising their kids. They're just trying to keep, keep their head down on their job. They're just trying to make it another day. And the enemy always wants to put you on your back foot, always keeping you in survival mode because if he can keep you as a survivor, he can keep you from being more than a conqueror. If he can keep you in a mindset and a posture of being a victim of circumstance, he can keep you from being the person you're created and called to be, overcoming. Nehemiah shows up to the city and he sees the walls burn with fire. He walks around, goes by himself at night, doesn't tell anybody what he's doing because he learned what Joseph, I mentioned last week, didn't do. Don't tell everybody what God's put in your heart all the time. You don't have to broadcast everything. And sometimes we're discouraged because we told our dream to the wrong person. We told our hope and expectation to the wrong person. And they came along and tried to redefine who we are and redefine the purpose and what God could do. Uh, so, so he goes around the city, takes a look, and he gathers the people the next day. In verse 17, he says, I said to them, you see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in waste. Its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may long, no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also of the king's words, the one who had sent him. And they set their hands to this good work. Verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, all the ites, Geshem the Arab, heard of it. These are the neighboring regions who've had unfettered access to hold back the city of Jerusalem from the purpose of God. Here's what they say. What's this thing you're doing? Who do you think you are? Will you rebel against the king? There is always gonna be a voice. There is always gonna be an opinion. Can I just tell you, you need somebody in your life that will speak truth to you. But not every voice is of equal weight, of equal value. Not every voice in your life deserves your attention. Anybody, when you were a kid, have your mom tell you, like mine did, you have selective hearing. I, I found this as a parent, too. My boy's in the front row. I'm going to pick on him for just a moment. Not, not, not really. But if I come into the house and I whisper, there's ice cream in the freezer, they can hear it on the other side of the house. But if I yell, clean your room, I didn't hear you say anything. No, I was the same way. We, uh, we, we, human beings, we have selective hearing, right? We, we can't have selective hearing. Nehemiah had selective hearing, and it was a good thing. Because the enemy was talking, saying, who do you think you are? You'll never change. You'll never make it. You can't rebuild this wall. Why would you do that? You must be rebels. Who, what business is this of yours? Watch his response. So I answered them and said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. 
Therefore, we, his servants, will, here's the word for you today, we will arise and build. Discouragement comes to keep us from doing those two things, arise and build. Elijah arose and ran, but you are called to arise and build. And he says, you enemy, you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. In other words, you have no business here. It's a good thing to have selective hearing when it comes to the lies. You don't have to give attention to that. That voice that says you can't make it. Maybe it was a voice of tradition. Tradition's not bad until it contradicts this. Maybe it was the voice of people around you that said, who do you think you are believing for something different in your life? You'll always be addicted. You'll always be angry. You come from divorce. You'll be divorced. You come from a mess. You'll be a mess. You come from that. That'll always be your future. We should all be afraid because that's the way the culture is. There's all these different things that come along and we can choose to listen to that voice or listen to the word of God and what heaven himself has said. Nehemiah says, no, no, you don't understand. You've got an opinion, but I have a God of heaven's armies, and he's going to make it happen, and he's going to be with us, and that's what defined the circumstance. In fact, there would be later on, they sent a false prophet, and they're like, stop building the wall and come down and talk with us, and he says, I can't come down from what I'm doing and mess around and talk with you. I have begun a good work. Some of us just need to remember, you're called to something more than listening to the lie of the enemy. He wants to keep us at the level of turkeys when you're called to be an eagle. Number one is arise. It's time to get back up, church. It is time in your life, in your family, in your relationships, in your calling. It is time to get back up. Isaiah 52.1, awake, awake. Put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised, the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise. Sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. What's he saying? He says, you're in the dust. You're in the dirt. You're in the mess. He says, awake and put on strength. You're called to more than what you're in right now. And I want to remind you today, church, it's time to arise. Whatever discouragement the enemy has used to wear you down, to get you to quit, to get you to give up, to get you to surrender your faith, your identity, and your inheritance in God. What is your Nazareth that says turn back? Awake. Put on strength. That's the action. You know, there's a part that God plays that only God can play, and there's a part that he's called us to play that only we can play. I think... What keeps most Christians out of the fight, out of the purpose, out of the calling is the tactic of discouragement. We've surrendered to it. Here's the action. Arise. Get up. Arise by definition means something in my life is low. Maybe it's emotionally, spiritually. Maybe it's even morally. We've lived beneath the call and purpose of God. And God calls us higher. He calls us into more. He calls us into his will for our lives. It's far greater than anything we'd settle for. But it also means that sometimes we're passively sitting on the sidelines. We're sitting on the sidelines. That's what it means to arise. Get up. Get in the fight. Get back in the game. Get into the purpose for which God has created you and designed you. When you live on purpose, you have something in your life that's solid. And when you go through storms and you go through difficulty, it's an anchor. The Bible says like this, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Sure and steadfast. Why do you need an anchor? Because there's wind and there's drift and there's currents. 
that will pull you in life if you let it. But your anchor is your confidence in God, in his word, and what he's created you for. Number two is we need to build. We need to build. Jason, if you want to get ready. We need to build. So what that means is we need to begin to walk in our God-given purpose today. Now, one day. One day I'll get around to it. One day I'll do what I'm created for. You know, if I were to ask you a question that I've asked a lot of people. In fact, we ask it in Next Steps, if you've been to Next Steps. What would you do if failure was not an option? Like you knew you couldn't fail. What would you do for God? And I'd add, money's no object. Because usually we talk ourselves out of, well, I don't have what I need. I don't have the people. I don't have the relationships. I don't have, and we give all the reasons why we can't do it. Do you know what Jesus turned the world upside down with? couple fishermen, an IRS worker, Matthew, tax collector, and an anti-government revolutionary zealot. Like, there's a team, put them together, small group. (laughs) He took a group of people that were so ordinary and so messed up by life, but he says, there's something inside of you, come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. When the disciples came to Jesus and he's reaching that whole town. And they're like, Jesus, you hungry? He's like, I got, here's what he says to him. I have food you know nothing of. The disciples begin to ask each other, like, who brought him breakfast? <laughs> Where did he get food? Jesus said, you know, you don't understand. The food I have, what feeds my life right now, what's feeding my life. And he's saying this as there's a whole town of people that the disciples and the religious tradition would have otherwise rejected. And they're coming to faith in God, coming to faith in him as the Messiah. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you know there's bread in your life that God's made available? It's the bread of purpose. What feeds your soul is purpose, and discouragement tries to keep you from the most important meal you have. What gives you strength, what gives you confidence in God is walking in your purpose. I know people all the time that they they just say, you know what, I put my time in, I did that thing. Let somebody else build. Can I just ask, why are you letting yourself starve? Why are you missing out on purpose? What does it look like to live in purpose? It looks like when the storm comes, you're still standing because you're living for something more. In fact, you've gotten to know, like sometimes now when I see a storm or I see a battle going on, I go, oh, the enemy knows what God's about to do. And he's trying to discourage. He's trying to get me to quit. He's trying to get me to throw in the towel. When you live in purpose, you don't give up on things that matter for eternity. You don't throw in the towel when you otherwise would. You know what I've learned? You don't have to be the best. Just keep showing up. (laughs) And and the enemy, I know, has tried to make a lot of us quit, make a lot of us give up. And I don't know what he's tried to make you quit on. Maybe it was your marriage. Maybe it's your faith, your kids, your calling. You just settled for less. You know, there's, there's a bread called purpose. It can feed your soul, feed your life, get you up in the morning. 
Mark Twain said, the two most important days of your life, the day you're born, the day you find out why. You have a purpose from God, from heaven. And the way we discover that, find out what that is, is for ourselves coming to a relationship with Jesus. Some of you say, well, I've been a Christian for my whole life and I don't know my purpose. Do you know what I think happens is, and my wife and I have been married 16 years now, we can look at a marriage and say, it's about a wedding day. The day you said yes to Jesus was the entry point. Not only for God to give you a home in heaven through Jesus, but to give you a purpose in the world until you get to heaven. Some of us, we just think, he saved me for fire insurance. He gave you a purpose. And until you discover what that is, you'll always be trying to fill your life with something less. Living for the opinions of people that may be good, but it's not the opinion that matters most. Living for ambitions that should instead be surrendered because there's something higher and greater that God has for you. All of these tests have to do with this. Discouragement is the lie to get you to quit. And I know you haven't quit. You know how I know that? Because you're here. Because you're still standing, you're still believing. You may not have it all figured out. You may not know how it's gonna change, but you're here and you're trusting God and you're taking the next step and it doesn't matter how much he's thrown at you or how much he's tried to sucker punch you, it's time to arise and it's time to build. Last verse, Philippians, Paul said this, Philippians 3, 13, brethren, I don't count myself as having apprehended. In other words, I haven't arrived, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What if your job was more than a paycheck? What if you were sent by God? What if your family was more than just a bunch of crazy people that you get together with around the holidays, but you were put on assignment in that family to be a light? What if you were to be the encourager? Well, no one encourages me. What if you were to be the one who makes a difference? What if you're called because you are? What if you have a purpose because you do? Would you stand to your feet? I wanna pray with you. Forgetting those things which are behind. Do you know, I learned this a long time ago. God was never impressed with me. <laughs> like I don't have to do anything to prove myself to God. I don't have to try to impress him. On my best day, it's not like he's on the throne going, wow, that's something, that's impressive. I didn't expect that, like, good job. Do you know why? Because God loved me before I ever showed up. God loved me on my worst day, as much as my best day. And God loves you. He loves you in your greatest pain. He loves you in your greatest failure. He loves you in the midst of your greatest disappointment. He loves you. And he calls us to know him. The way to know your purpose is to walk with the one who gives it. And the more you walk with him, the more you'll begin to discover what purpose looks like. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.